0: Shortly after Monocle launched back in 2007, the financial crash threatened to devastate businesses, especially new players on the scene. But for some, Monocle included, it was a moment of opportunity. Sometimes, a crisis can be a real catalyst for innovation. In this series, we're speaking to creative business leaders about how their futures and those of their industries are changing. And we're asking them, what do these new opportunities look like? This is the Chief's special season of The Big Interview on Monocle24, and I'm Tyler Brulé. And today, we speak to Jeremy King, celebrated restaurateur and co-founder of hospitality group Corbett & King. King's a firm critic of the UK government's vague comms and slapdash financial aid in response to the pandemic. The country's Achilles' heel is the domestic mindset with which it has responded to recent challenges in the F&B sector. So why isn't it looking further afield, to Vienna or to Milan, for some brighter ideas? Socially distanced dining rooms are surely the opposite of everything that makes eating out a joy. So how do restaurants find a happy medium? Jeremy King speaks to me today from his home in Fitzrovia. Maybe if you could frame for our listeners a little bit where the UK sits, because one of the the curious things about having this conversation is that we see A very disjointed world with some woolly guidelines from the WHO, also some rather woolly guidelines from governments all over the world. We've seen some countries, the gastronomy scene has has opened up in some places with a lot of success, and there are large parts of the world where it's completely dark. Um, Some areas it's takeaway, uh, some areas not. What is the view from your perch in London at the moment?
1: We're in the depths of confusion. We have a situation where I mean, put it in perspective the uh, six weeks or so ago i think we were nine days behind uh france in the in the way the pandemic was spreading and the way people were dealing with it now i think we're about six or seven weeks behind because we we haven't taken a grip on it and if you ask me uh when we're we hoping to open i would say july the 4th but then i'd have to qualify it because i'd say I'm under the conditions of which i'm not absolutely sure and i don't know when i'll be sure what is very obvious to me is that the government is split and there's one faction which have gone through it and indeed have even suffered from seriously from covid are keen to protect people and so on and of course i suppose it's fair to say protect themselves and there's the other more pragmatic side of the government, which includes the Treasury, which was saying, come on, let's get on with it. But the trouble is, nobody is really divulging what the statistics are. You get people saying that in the UK, 7% have experienced COVID, and then the next person says 40%. Nobody knows. And the architects of, of our lockdown, the scientist and the strategist, both completely ignored their own strictures about staying away from people or traveling. So I think there's a lot of confusion here and it's beginning to show in the responses from the government.
0: In your sector, is there a, a champion? Because we've seen in, in many countries, you do have quite strong lobbying bodies uh, for the F&B industry. And, and oftentimes government has really gone to them saying, look, you know this best. We, you know, we can talk to epidemiologists, we can talk to all kinds of people in the hygiene profession, but you know your industry best. And is that occurring, is that happening in the UK? Is there a voice or a set of voices who are having an informed discussion with government?
1: Well, there never used to be. We're better served now because there's a body called UK Hospitality. There's a woman called Kate Nichols, But, of course, she's fighting on so many different fronts and sometimes is perceived by people to to throw in the towel. And there's certain issues. I mean, one of the fundamental issues of the catering business. And you've got to remember, we, as in hospitality generally, I think, employ close on 3 million people in the country, at times 10%, and contribute fantastic revenues but we have a Home Secretary who describes us all as unskilled workers, treats us with contempt, and post-Brexit, a sense that we don't need the foreigners in the country. My God, we do need them, and we welcome them, and we enjoy them, and they and enrich them. But the barriers for anybody to come in, on top of the ones who are here, are massive. And it makes for, the, for a workforce which doesn't feel wanted. Top that up with the problem with the... Furlough scheme, which I'm full of admiration for the government in actually putting the furlough scheme in, whereby they were going to pay 80% of earnings up to a value of 30,000. Well, the catering business now nowadays they're not that well paid, and gone are the days which we people used to talk about in New York, where people would go home with hundreds, even almost a thousand dollars in their pocket. In cash now it's properly regulated, but the government said right furloughs fine. We all breathed a sigh of relief. However, people in the catering industry cannot count any monies received through service charge in calculating that 80 percent, and which is ridiculous because it all goes through PAYE. It's a setup which has been there since 65, 1965, and. Nobody can understand it. It seems to be because the government has been under a lot of pressure. A lot of these decisions are made um, colloquially, we used to call them on the back of a fag packet, and and, and bless them, it it is very hard. But people just didn't really understand it. The net result is that we only have about 40% of wages going to people who weren't that well paid in the first place. And against a background of landlords who are very keen to press home their advantage evict people and so on and so forth a lot of people are disappearing and or are living in, in terrible straits we launched an appeal to customers in order to generate some money for them it was the way we did is not expecting donations although we got masses of donations we said please buy a voucher for the future invest in that in the future It won't cost you anything other than what you would have spent on a meal and 50 percent will go to the staff And that's had a lot of effect, I think, both psychologically on staff and also to a degree on the government, because I know it went up there. But the next thing which we need, and you were asking about the body Kate Nichols is fighting on at the moment, is that the landlords are all demanding their rent. Well, I say all. uh, There's a few excellent people, such as the Crown Estate, etc., who've been giving rent-free periods. But most landlords are expecting to Receive all their rent at the end of this. They know they can't come after us with statutory demands and evictions or anything like that, but they're expecting the money. So, with the likelihood of income, if we do go back in July, being 30, 40%, possibly, all the restaurant industry is doing is building up debts.
0: Let's talk about landlords for a moment. Uh, Is there anything also happening on the side of? this lobby entity on the part of Ms. Nichols and a discussion as well about, you know, certainly not just Def and B. I mean, it's many people occupying the high street if you're in services, if you're in retail. To again, have this discussion, the, your businesses have been forced to be closed. And of course, there's really no sight line as to are our shops going to be open by, by the middle of June in the UK or not. We don't really, really know. Is there a discussion in Parliament right now about also what landlords should be doing? We know they can't turf you out and overnight, but is there also a, a call or guidelines to say, look at you have to give a 50% rent holiday and that money's not coming back to you. We're all in this together or is it still a bit cowboy country?
1: It's still cowboy country. And I was speaking to somebody yesterday who said exactly the same. They said, it's the wild west out there. Everybody out, out for themselves and particularly with the landlord's It's interesting because I submitted to somebody close to the government on the Treasury side one, a plea to help with the landlords, to which I got a very succinct why. Um, They've enjoyed an unprecedented number of years of increasing profits and it's time they took a hit, which rather shocked me. But I also fed into them, this is about three weeks ago, the, the emerging Italian model, which... I think makes a lot of sense, and my understanding is the Italian model is that they were going to t- pick up sixty percent of the rent, but possibly using tax breaks, and that the landlord should sacrifice twenty percent of the rent, and the tenant should pay twenty percent of the rent. i you know we could talk about the figures, but I thought that was really fair and and, and very creative, and this is why whilst in some ways The government here in intention has been exemplary. Actually, in efficacy of dealing with these problems which are looming, I'm not so sure.
0: I'm curious, and we could probably spend an hour on this one, but the UK has sold itself, uh, sometimes very rightly, uh, sometimes maybe they've re- misrepresented themselves as being a service-based economy. How, how has the UK arrived at a point, Jeremy, where you, know, you talk up this great uh, service game, and yet somehow, of course, it's the Home Secretary, but you know, it goes all the way up to the top of the PM, that there is just not this element of respect? And how, how are you going to push through with a service sector right now with, obviously, you know, not a lot of support? For guidance for where you are, uh, but it's also it's not it's also people who are working in call centers and who are uh, picking fruit and who are uh, supporting the grocery stores. What's been missed here?
1: Well, I, I, it's an interesting question about the nature of our service industry, and of course we conspired against that in with Brexit. And I'm talking about financial services as much as gastronomy and. I don't feel it's controversial to say that there is still very much a class system operating in this country. And we're rather good in imitative innovation. And just on the gastronomy side, people say, well, London is the culinary capital of the world. I I don't think so. I think London has an awful lot of very good people doing an excellent job of imitating other cuisines. We don't have our own inherent cuisine. It's just building and this is why I'm so sad about Covid because all this new run of British or naturalised British chefs, general managers etc all opening their own businesses have all been totally slayed by what's going on. I do things like doing speakers for schools but I went into a did a speaker for school in the East End theoretically to talk about restaurant industry. I never do. I talk about trying to inspire them to do what they want to do rather than what they feel they should do but by telling tales of my life hopefully making it interesting but the headmistress told me just as I was about to speak so I should bear in mind they're not going to be very receptive because over 90 percent of them their parents came in from India, Pakistani, Bangladesh etc etc and those parents the only profession they could pick up was in the restaurant business, and they'll do anything to get away from it. So there still remains a certain stigma about it. And when you have the Home Secretary decrying our ability it will stick and we've seen with the advent of brexit we lost a very high proportion of the polish because they were the ones who received most racist abuse from their neighbors and so on but the others are not going i've just surveyed all the staff to see if a lot of them the ones who escaped the country are actually going to be bothered to come back because and frankly you do wonder you do wonder why but they're an extraordinary bunch and it's time that the country really, really starts to support. That's why I was so keen, so happy about the support that the customers gave to the staff in in the appeal. It made them feel loved, it made them feel wanted. And don't we all need that in life, particularly if you're living in a foreign country, speaking a foreign language by yourself?
0: And Jeremy, you, you bring us to an interesting junction as well, because you, you also talk about surveying the staff. And if we look at many, many people working in your business, and many people who I encounter, if I go around the corner from our office in London, if I go to Fisher's, and you have people who are from really the heart of middle Europa. And, and isn't it curious that we're at a time right now where a lot of those countries, uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, have really been seen as as leaders in terms of locking down quickly, but also emerging very quickly as well. There is this odd narrative of fear it seems to me when I when I look at the UK press at the moment, everything is asking this question about, is it safe? And really almost sort of stirring up this angst on the part of, of everybody where I feel in many other corners of Europe this is this is evaporating. We're moving on. And I'm wondering as you look forward, uh, do we need to see a, a change? Because I think we're still in, you're still in stay alert mode in the UK, and and I think what's what's interesting there's this dichotomy between a lot of countries. You know, the government has had an adult conversation, and they've put. and Maybe this is it's not just within these times, but you know there is the citizen is, is they, they have to take responsibility for themselves. And that's, that's the beginning and end point. Whereas there is, there's almost feels like a slight infantilization in terms of how the government is, is speaking to the
1: UK. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I'm living in central London, I'm seeing what's going on. And I think we do need leadership. One of the problems here, when it came to lockdown, we got an edict, I think, on the Monday night, saying, well, we're keeping the restaurants open, but you shouldn't go to them. So, the, of course, what happened is nobody wanted to come, only, only a certain amount of dowdy people. What I'm scared of is that we're going to get to July the 4th and the government's going to be saying, yeah, we've opened the restaurants, you all wanted us to open the restaurants, but we suggest you don't go, because people will listen. There's a middle ground, and we have to build the confidence. So all my lobbying to the government is... Allows to operate you cannot take everybody down to the lowest common denominator. there will be people who shouldn't go out, there will be people who are scared to go out. I have it with my staff you know who are petrified of getting on the underground and eighty seven of my staff said no we're we're happy to come back. No, we don't need anything special They're relying on us to do what's what's sensible, and we all have different risk aversion i mean i don't know whether. Nick Jones would stand by this analogy soon, but he I remember at the beginning of it he said, Look, if you really, really looked at the statistics on car accidents and injuries and deaths, etc., you probably wouldn't drive a car if you if, if you looked at it in the same way. Number leave. And how do people do with it? Well, some people won't go in a car, some go down the motorway in fifty miles an hour in the slow lane, a lot of people go down the middle lane at seventy miles an hour. And there's a lot of people in the outside lane who are more reckless. Now, there's, of course, an argument to say their recklessness can endanger the lives of others and so on. And I, I get that. We can't unify the nation by trying to make everybody happy. There's one of the great rules for me in, in life is if, if everybody's happy, or more to the point, nobody's unhappy. Whatever you've done is probably ineffective and wishy-washy. It's like in design. You can't please everybody. You can't. Whatever we do, I don't want everybody to like it because it means it's sterile.
0: The surprising thing, too, I mean, we've been talking about also nations here. You've been talking about your workforce you know whether it's a service industry whether it's even corners of the media industry in the UK you know you have people from scores of countries who are contributing to the mix and what surprises me out of all of this there doesn't seem to be a lot of benchmarking going on um, and i don't know if again if this is also a post-brexit you know mindset oh we don't have to we don't have to Really pay attention to what they're they're doing in Milan because look at they they probably they got it wrong. Look at the rates in that country. One thing which was striking for us is you know we saw, yeah you know, we've seen the workplace document in the UK which is runs to 32 pages about what you need to do to open your office. The version in this country is 2.5. Stay home if you don't feel very well. Uh, keep your hands uh, clean and keep your distance, but also within reason, it's down to the employer to come up with a sense of workplace. It's not about being policed by some outside body. And this is the curious thing. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of time is being spent cooking up new things when, in fact, uh, someone's already made some good recipes elsewhere.
1: I think that's right. And I've been saying to my team and, and staff as a whole, I said, you know, we we're very fortunate because there are a lot of people we can learn from across europe and because of the we fell behind it's immensely useful but my understanding is the british government is not interested in relaxing whether back of house or front of house anything away from the the 2 meter rule and it is it is arbitrary uh yes it can help in different ways but is it 2 meters sitting side by side or is it two you know two meters opposite each other or back to back meanwhile they give instructions that in the kitchen they don't need to be two meters apart as long as they're not facing each other and so the left hand and the right hand don't know what they're doing and I've seen some of those documents as well on protocols for opening restaurants receiving goods it was hysterical because what would it take normally five minutes to do was going to take about 45 minutes to do because of all the hand-washing protocols and this and that and recordings and, and so on. So it's just not practical and it will get abandoned very soon. The question is, is whether we are prepared to take the risks and follow Switzerland's example, as you say, of people saying, no, nah, what's the point, nobody cares.
0: If, if we look forward for a moment Jeremy you know what is your take on all of these proclamations because you know, you're reading journals all over the place but you know left and right we've been hearing of course things are never going to be the same again that's it for the working lunch because people are going to of course be sitting at home and they can be sort of dining and and certainly uh, eating you know whatever the, whatever their chosen dishes out of the fridge um, on a zoom call etc and on it goes that times will will never be the same again after this uh, do, do you buy any of them
1: no no i don't i quite like it when people say this is in a way like a mini new industrial revolution i think things will be different but if you work in london the chances are you're extremely fortunate you don't in live in the center of london so that journey in from suburbs etc is really painful so i love alleviating that and just taking the the pressure on people and and I was thrilled that we started it. I did warn my managing director, I said, you know, we've we've got to have equality of course and it's only a matter of time before the waiters start complaining that they can't work from home. But the the um it's because it gets it sometimes does get nonsensical. I my team is all saying people are not coming back to the offices, a lot of people have been laid off. We're just go through it. I mean, I'm old enough that I've been through um, quite a few really serious downturns. And it's, wor- it's worked out in the long run. Talking just before the lockdown, I was addressing as about 100, 100, 120 people. And I was being more positive than anybody else was about Brexit, even though I decried and hated Brexit and everything. I said, we'll be fine. I said, you know, where the British are really interesting is this notion of not knowing where we stand, because when if we don't have anything to fight, we go into what's moaning. During this talk I was giving on Brexit and being positive, I said, listen, if I stood here and there was a massive blast and clearly a bomb had gone off fairly nearby and maybe rocked the glass or shattered it, there would be pandemonium you would be screaming, you'd be running for the doors, people would get hurt, there would be mass sobbing, hysteria, and so on and so forth. And there we were, right at the beginning of 2020. Now, if we then rewind back 80 years, uh, or just under 80 years, and the same happened during the war, I would stop briefly, you would flinch a bit, and then I'd say, that was close. And then i carry on because we have this infinite capacity to adjust to the situation and to make the best of it. We're almost incapable of not. Some people just collapse in a puddle on the floor and say, woe where is, where is me. And they tend to be the narcissist. But most people work on the basis, will make good of this. And so I think the, the human capacity to take short-term pain, readjust and become positive is there. I don't think in full answer to your question that everything is going to be so different what it will do is it will shake out a lot of restaurants we were overserved, and possibly people might even appreciate restaurants that much more because we've seen these polls where people are being asked what do you miss most through lockdown yes number one tends to be family and so on and so forth but normally number two or number three is going to restaurants or going you know going to the pub nobody has to go and eat in any of my restaurants in the west end the reason we go to restaurants is for any number of reasons because the restaurants act as a catalyst and the reason i like doing grand cafes is because they're the best catalyst you can make of it whatever you want dates business meetings reunions seduction divorce all these different things a good restaurant will allow you to do nobody has to go in but the other aspect and what i've gleaned from people over the last few weeks is they miss what i call the conviviality of community i think we need that community
0: because everything has to be prescribed we have to meet at a certain time in the digital ether somehow to make these things happen you know, in the same way that you know people are terrified when the phone rings, they don't know who's calling them. You're absolutely right. We miss this serendipity right now, don't we? The fact that I don't know who I'm going to bump into. It could be an ex-employer I don't like, uh, or it's someone uh, dear who's flown across the Atlantic who I haven't seen for for decades. And that's what, as you talk about, that, that convivial sense of community, that's what's what's missing right now, and hopefully, you know, this is what registers with people now. And as you said, they are identifying it when you talk to them. But it's it's also you get a first taster of it, and I think this is what we've you know I've witnessed over the last you know certainly you know a couple of weeks since restaurants have been open here, you know, in a beautiful way. You cannot then control humankind. You can say, look at oh, you you need to sit down. You, you shouldn't get up. You need to have an appointed seat at the bar. I mean, good luck trying to govern that. And but that's a beautiful thing.
1: For me, a lot of the most uplifting experiences have taken place in restaurants, and it's that, and not necessarily grand restaurants in the West End of London or in other cities, but often remote places with cobbled together chairs and plain walls, etc., because the, there's nothing to beat a great restaurateur acting as, as that catalyst for people to have a good time to make them feel special. And I always feel when I go into a restaurant, I want to be almost scooped off my feet and delivered to the table. And I, I want to look over on the left as a friend and I wave and then to the right, there might be somebody famous that I'm thrilled to see. And then the people who shouldn't be together over there and, and all, all sorts of things. And it's, but unfortunately a lot of restaurant going, it became ritual that signed kind of what you wanted to do and that's why a lot of restaurants do this thing whereby you go for dinner and then the music gets ramped up and uh and then you're still late and it's it's a nightclub it's just like a process i think people are really really readjusting to a new life and if there are any real changes it'll be subtle personal changes rather than the the herd mentality i mean of course a lot of people have I've talked about FOMO in terms of fear of missing out um, and early on I was saying you know I've got to the point I'm it's odd for a restaurateur I have a certain amount of FOGO I quite like um, not feeling obliged and an architect friend of mine she said I'm treating it like lots of new years rolled into one with lots of new resolutions for instance I am never going to a another opening or party like that unless I really want to which is you know my which is my ethos anyway never do anything or accept anything to do something in the future unless you'd like to be doing it tonight because we all run around in this need for recognition and gratification and so on and so forth i think people there's a chance people will find out who they really are through something like lockdown i i think it's a wonderful opportunity i'm sorry for, for of course for anybody who's lost their life and the, and the families, I'm sorry for people who are losing their jobs, but at the same time, I have to look at it as as a way to reassess my life and my business.
0: I'm sure out of all of this, there's going to be you know a lot of people who will look up to you, who looked look at what, who certainly have, have observed what you've done and are thinking, "God, I'd like to have a hotel. I would love to you uh, know hang out my shingle and, and run a cafe or restaurant um, for those people who who are listening. Uh, what are um, Mr. King's three musts when you th- when you look at this sector? And I think you've just you created this wonderful sense of just yearning when you talk about going into a room. What what are three things that a great restaurateur should always be delivering?
1: So, for anybody coming into the business, a is to treat as customers as though it's your opening week, however busy you are, because this is the the danger that we have as restaurateurs and restaurant staff have a propensity to arrogance and complacency once they get busy and the second problem is that so often restaurateurs don't own their businesses so my advice is always to them if it means starting really small always remain in control because there's this problem which I often think about with Steve Jobs which um, to paraphrase he, he said, why is it that we, the big companies, the rich companies, are attracted to the new, innovative, youthful people who are doing things differently to what we even imagine, and we want, we want them, we want to invest in them and buy them. And you could say this about private relationships, when two people meet each other. He said, we get them, and then what do we do? Very quickly, we start trying to change them to think like ourselves, it just doesn't work. So for me, the best restaurateurs are the ones who have control over their business because otherwise they're at the mercy of financially motivated people. And I always say that too many restaurants are run from boardrooms and that's an impossible way of doing it. The only way you can really run restaurants properly is from the floor and understand who the people are.
0: A big thank you to Jeremy King for joining us for this week's episode of the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview The Big Interview was produced by Paige Reynolds researched by Charlie Filmer Court and edited by Steph Chungdu and Jack Jewers In Zurich, I'm Tyler Brulé
1: thank you very much for listening